Hello, friends. Have you noticed how much podcasts have grown in popularity over the past few years? We definitely have, and it's insane. We have an opportunity for your business to take advantage of the exponential growth of our podcast by advertising with us. We've been riding the podcast growth wave for a few years now, and we want you to take advantage of this too. We have unbeatable pricing and advertising packages, and we work with you on an individual basis to produce the most effective ad possible for our audience. If you would like to advertise with Forbidden Knowledge News, email me, forbiddenknowledgenews at gmail.com. We look forward to all our new partnerships. Welcome back to Forbidden Knowledge News. I'm your host, Chris Matthew. Tonight, my guest is Jim Willis. Before I bring him on, I have to, of course, thank C60 Purple Power. They are the amazing company that produces this awesome super antioxidant. It acts as a free radical sponge, eliminating toxins in the body. It has me feeling better than I felt in years, and you should too. Go check out their website to learn more about this. Just click the link in the description or visit c60purplepower.com. And you can use coupon code KNOWLEDGE10 if that link doesn't work by any chance. You're going to get 10% off your order plus free shipping. Also, please subscribe to Forbidden Knowledge News on LVRY.com. It's our official backup channel. We're always on your, all your popular podcast platforms. And we have a brand new show called Beyond Classified. It is exclusively on Rockfin, which is an, an amazing new platform for free-thinking content creators and independent media. Uh, it's not just us on there. You're going to get shows like Leak Project, Charlie Robinson, Sam Tripoli, Jimmy Dore, many more. Uh, it's a great new platform. Um, and all of our stuff, all of our content that you can't get on YouTube, all the controversial things that you used to hear from us, it will be on Rockfin. And all those links are now in the description. Tonight, I want to welcome back to the show, Jim Willis. After graduating from the Eastman School of Music, he was a high school band and orchestra teacher during the day and a symphony trombonist on the weekends and jazz musician at night and choral conductor on Sunday mornings before earning his master's degree in religion and entering the Protestant ministry for 40 years. He is the author of 13 books on spirituality and lost civilizations. He has served as an adjunct college professor in the fields of world religions and instrumental music. He is also a guest lecturer, speaking about topics ranging from historical studies to contemporary spirituality. His recent books include Lost Civilizations, The Quantum Akashic Field, Hidden History, Ancient Aliens, and the Suppressed Origins of Civilization, and Censoring God, the Suppression of the Lost Books of the Bible and Other Scriptures. He will also be a presenter at this year's upcoming Forbidden Knowledge News Con. Jim, welcome back. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Chris. Good to be with you again, as always. It is. It's great to be with you. And like we were saying um, before we started rolling here, so much has happened since we, we last oh, spoke. And wow. Yes, yeah, yes, we live yes. in a completely different world than we did pre-2020. <laughs> I mean, I always uh -huh. say if you would have woke up, if you've been in a coma for the past year and a half and you woke up now, you'd be like, what is going on? This is like the worst science yeah. fiction movie I've ever seen. Uh, yeah. But it's it's really a critical point, I believe, in our modern history when it comes to 
us, the discoveries about ourselves and everything that's happening around it. We've got crazy UFO talk. Um, these are very interesting times that we're living. And I'd like to know how has things been for you and your family during these times? Well, you know, personally, um, it hasn't made a lot of difference physically because we moved out here to the woods down in South Carolina 11 years ago. And uh, we've been self-quarantining the whole time. We, you know, days go by when we don't see anybody. Um, so it hasn't been that much of a change for us personally, except I've noticed a, a, a tremendous change spiritually. Um, like most people, I find myself stuck in front of the TV watching the news. I want to know what's going on. And you, you, you feel that the, the tension and the anxiety in the news when you hear the numbers build up about people who were hit by COVID and you, you feel all that, you internalize all that. And of course, with all the political stuff and all the economic stuff and with all the other things going on, uh, it, it affects your mind to the point where I've, I'm finding it very difficult to do the kind of meditation I'm used to the kind of meditation I need to do. My mind just seems to fly off and I'm using every trick I can have <laughs> invented over the last, you know, 20, 30 years of meditation, but it's hard. Uh, the whole vibration of, 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 of the planet is, is, is caught up in this. And I don't think we can ignore it. I, I think it's really serious. So, uh, it's it, it's difficult in another way too, and that um, you know I write books, of course. Now books are a pretty introspective thing. When I'm in the process of writing, days might go by without hardly talking to anybody, and then all of a sudden I start talking about the books, and I'm out here, you know, like for instance with you folks talking to your to your listening base and your your viewership, and uh, I'm, I'm listening to the television, and I'm out there in the world again, and so I get right back into that whole. A thing that I tried to escape when I came out here in the woods in the first place. And it's tough. It's tough. I, I, I'd, I'd love to say that I'm this, uh, this great, you know, got it all together, spiritual guy, but uh, man, it, it is a, it is a tough time. It is a tough time. Yeah. And before I forget, speaking of, you know, your own personal journey and living out in the woods. Uh, you were telling me that you had a very interesting story to tell about your retirement when you first moved out there. And I'd love to hear about that. Oh yeah. When, when I retired uh, from 40 years in the Protestant ministry, and uh, of course I was doing a lot of other things too, but I was a Protestant minister for 40 years with all the uh, things that a regular minister had. And I think the last time we talked, I mentioned that uh, I'd had this crazy idea that when you go into it, church, you're going to be surrounding yourself with this great spiritual community and people are going to be just involved with spiritual growth. And of course it is that way. You, you, you get tied up and you get going on all these things. So when we came out here, uh, I had a, a Bible verse in mind. Uh, when I retired, uh, I deliberately wanted to spend the time to try to confront the reality the spiritual reality, the source, uh, God, that I had been talking about my whole life and, and never really taken the time to connect with in the way I wanted. So I came out here and I actually had a Bible verse in mind. Um, that Bible verse was uh, comes from the book of Genesis. It was from the story of uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were brothers. And for those of you who are not familiar with the story, they had a 
a falling out when Jacob tried to uh, cheat Esau out of his birthright. And basically, Jacob had to free for his life. And he left the the uh, place that we know right now as Israel and, and headed north. And he wound up probably in uh, uh, what we would call Anatolia or Western Turkey today. It's up where Abraham came from, up in the same place where Gobekli Tepe was built, up in that same neck of the woods. But after a long time, he decided to come back and he was going to be reconciled with his brother uh, Esau when the craziest thing happened. The night before they were scheduled to meet, he was on one side of the river. Esau was on the other side of a river. And Jacob was doing what we all do when we get anxious and worried. And he, he was walking up and down. And all of a sudden, this he said uh, he, he saw what he thought was a man. And they decided to wrestle. <laughs> says something about his frame of mind, I guess. And they wrestled all night long until finally Jacob figured out that he was wrestling with God. Now, of course, I, I read this as a metaphor, but here was Jacob wrestling with God all night long until finally the sun began to come up and Jacob said the most amazing thing. He said, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, if you look right over my left shoulder back here, you'll see a picture. You may not be able to see it too well on your camera, but it's a picture of Jacob wrestling with, with, with God saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. That was, that was the, the, uh, the, the verse that was in my mind. I wanted to come out here to the woods and confront the essential reality that I had called God, that was source, Manitou, uh, Brahman, all the different names that people give that, that great spiritual entity, which is the source of all things. So I came out here thinking I was going to wrestle with God, and I was going to wrestle with for, for a year. Well, it's been 11 years, but couple of years into the wrestling match, I discovered that lo and behold, God had answered my prayers. Uh, I, I wrestled with God until God blessed me. And God appeared not as um, out of the Christian faith that I had been practicing for the last 40 years. And it's a total, total different reality, a reality that probably would have been much more familiar to what we would call the shamanistic view or the natural view today. Well, with that in mind, I had a, a, a wonderful opportunity a couple of years ago, uh, I was asked to go to Cornwall in, in England. And over there, I met some wonderful people who were members of the uh, British Dowsing Society. And I was asked to give a, a, a talk about the birth of world religions and how they are connected and what's at the basis of all of them. As a matter of fact, the essence of that talk is on my YouTube page. Uh, you can probably find, I think it's called One Ring to Rule Them All or something like that. It's on my YouTube page. But at any rate, I was out there and I had a wonderful time with these people. They were great. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a conference with them uh, next month. Uh, I'll be, I'll be uh, presenting uh, virtually, of course, through, through um, uh, Zoom, a, a thing about dowsing and dowsing for healing and health and spiritual hunger. Well, I was out there. I, I had to make a side trip when I finished, uh, when I finished my, my business down in Cornwall. I had a great time dowsing with some of the, 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 the great ley line people. And John Moss, who was uh, uh, very much influential in the British Dowsing Society, he and I went out and we doused the Merry Maidens and uh, visited Stonehenge and, of course, all the, the things. But my ancestors years ago, I mean, I'm talking three, four hundred years ago, were... Um, members of the clergy they were with the uh the uh, uh english 
version at that point, so to speak, Church of England that had broken off from uh, from the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. And my ancestors used to preach in a little church in a little town called Fenny Compton. Uh, it's up northwest of London. And so I made arrangements to go up there and stay in, a, in an inn. I had a wonderful time up there with meeting the people in Fenny Compton. And the town historian took me into the very same church where my ancestors used to preach. Uh, it was a humbling time. And I walked up into the pulpit and I stood there in the pulpit where my great, 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 great grandfather way back when Willis uh, preached. Uh, the historian showed me hit the, the plaque on the wall that uh, honored him and showed me the place where he lived, which is now just a mound because the house is long gone, of course. But the brick, the, I mean, not the brick, but the stone church still was there. And it was just exactly as it was when he was there pretty much. So I walked up into the pulpit and standing in the pulpit where my ancestor preached, I looked around and there was a stained glass window that could only be viewed properly from the pulpit. He looked at it every single Sunday. And it was a subject that I had never before seen in a stained glass window. It was the picture depicting Jacob wrestling with Esau saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Wow. Now I can't, my, my hair stood up on end. I mean, it was just unbelievable. I can't imagine how that spiritual DNA was passed down in my family from generation to generation to generation, somehow wound up in me. And there that very same scripture verse that he saw every single Sunday was the verse that inspired me to come out here. And it changed my spiritual outlook completely. Yeah. Uh, I'll never forget it. Never forget it. Yeah. I believe that there are certain times where we experience these synchronicities and signs that yeah. if we yeah. can't ignore, we have to follow, you know, there's, there's certain things mm -hmm. that happen in our lives, like the experience you just spoke of that I think are meant to lead us in a certain direction, especially if you're at a point where you're not sure and this shot, this sign appears at that time, you know, that's, yes. that's, yeah. that's your answer. Yeah. I believe for me. Yeah. 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 And uh, it, it was, it was so real, you know, you, you read about these things or you hear about these things. And I was always in the past, I would hear about something like this and I'd say, yeah, well, okay. Coincidence, you know, something like that. But boy, when you experience it, all of a sudden your eyes are open and you realize that there's something bigger than you that's guiding you through life. It's a, it's a comforting feeling, especially in these difficult times in which we live. It's nice to know that there's uh, something bigger than us that's really in charge and is going to see us through. Yeah, definitely. It, it, it is a great feeling. I've experienced it myself recently with some experiences that I've had. And um, I think I, that I was going to I, I was going to ask you about that. Last time we talked, you said you had had your first out of body experience. Uh, well, it, have you had yeah, a follow up on that since? Yes. Um, since then, I've had a couple of more. And um, oh, great. It, Wonderful. I got to uh, speak with what I believe are what I can only describe as angelic beings and um, yes. have conversations, psychic conversations with these beings. And it's just mm -hmm. amazing to experience something like that. Yeah. Uh, and the, the feeling of love that comes along with it is it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's yeah. nothing you've, you can when, experience on earth. When, when they talk to you or when they teach you, does it come word for word or does it come in a block of teaching that somehow it, you just understand all of it? It is. Sudden? It's like a block sometimes. And sometimes ah, it's, it's it like yeah. images and feelings. It's not necessarily a co fluid conversation, but yeah, yes, yeah. It, it does come in blocks of information often. Yes. 
Very, very common. Uh, that's that's wonderful. Oh, Chris, congratulations! Yeah, you've you really broken through the side. I wish I wish I could have done it when I was your age. I had to wait till later on in life. Yeah, well, I was I was asking for it at the time. You know, I really wanted to, great, to delve great, into that, wonderful. explore it. So, yeah, it's really helped mm-hmm. me and uh, to continue that journey and and kind of focus more on meditation and being able to achieve states like that. Uh, which I want to talk yeah. about a little later too. Um, sure. But what I want to start with is your your book, Censoring God. I think it, it has many parallels to what's occurring today around the world, um, especially when yeah. you look at yeah. censorship and our personal freedoms, even religious freedoms. No matter what religion you believe, it seems worldwide they're being suppressed, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you yeah. see the same kind of spiritual censorship happening right now? Yes, I I do. Uh, Censoring God is going to is scheduled to come out on April first. It's in the uh, printing stage right now. But when I was doing Censoring God, it it came out of the knowledge that we like to think, or we are taught that somehow the Bible or any of the religious. Uh, scriptures for any other great religions, that they come to us straight out of the mouth of God. You know, God says it, and there it is. It's in the Bible. Unfortunately, the more you study this, and the more you begin to understand how these texts were put together, you understand that there's a committee between us and the original writers. The original writers, I think many of them were shamanistic in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, Elijah, Isaiah. They they talk about experiences which are very common to the shaman, shamanic tradition. And then along comes a committee who decides what we're going to get and what we aren't. And uh, Censoring God is devoted to this particular thing. It talks about all kinds of books uh, that we didn't know about that were dis- have disappeared. Nobody knew anything about them until all of a sudden they appeared at the Dead Sea, uh, at the Dead Sea Scrolls, or the, uh, the Nag Hammadi um, uh, manuscripts that were found in the desert. Uh, it, we kind of caught the committee in a kind of a, uh, well, we, we caught them with their pants down, so to speak, in a couple of places. For instance, in the book of Genesis, they talk about this, this guy named Enoch, who suddenly walked with God, and then he disappeared. Uh, and the book of uh, Jude picks it up. Uh, and Jude tells us in, in the New Testament, little book of Jude, just one chapter long, just before the book of Revelation, says that Jude was prophesying about the angels and everything else. And so we knew that there was some character named Enoch, and we knew that these people were familiar with the book about him, but we didn't have the book. And so for hundreds and hundreds of years that the book of Enoch remained hidden, we thought it was lost forever until a copy of it was found in, of all places, Ethiopia. And it was brought back to England and translated. Now, how did it get to Ethiopia? Well, that's a story that could take us for a full hour, so you'll have to get the book for that. But all of a sudden, after hundreds of years, thousands of years, actually, we had finally in front of us the very same book that was read by the people who wrote not only some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament. And now we can read this fantastic story about the inside story about how the angels uh, saw that the daughters of men were fair and mated with them before the flood. And the flood was sent to destroy the offspring of these. And we read about the Nephilim, the mighty men of old. And uh, all of a sudden, we have that book. So what I tried to do in Censoring God was to bring all of this into a 
thing. Of course, it can't go into a lot of, of depth, but the book is a pretty big book. So it, it, it goes into a lot of depth, but it brings out this idea that between us and the original writers, there stands a committee who had to decide what made the final cut and what didn't. And they often made their decisions, not based on the spiritual things or the, even the historical things. They based their decisions on politics, on, on who wanted what in the Bible. Did Constantine want us to know about this? Because it seemed to imply something different. And so they, they would meet in, in Nicaea or they would meet in Ethiopia and they have all these different, not in Ethiopia, but uh, in, uh, in Turkey, for instance, in, in, uh, in Ephesus. And they would have these these meetings, and a lot of the decision was based on the politics of the day. Uh, Rome was trying, when the New Testament was put together, Rome was trying to bring the world together. One way to do that was through politics, but through religion. And so they wanted a religion that would bring everybody in and insist that if you're going to be here, a Roman citizen and a Christian, this is what you had to believe. So that's how the Bible was put together. <laughs> strange, strange thing happened, though, because I discovered that this is the case not only in religion. This is the case in archaeology. It's the case in science. It's the case in, in physics. All of these things that come to us come through sensors, which is one of the reasons I'm so glad for programs such as yours and uh, programs you can see on television right now that can bypass the sensors and bring all of this information to us. Now, is all of the information uh, necessarily correct just because we bypassed the sensors? Well, some of it is, some of it isn't, but at least we can make the choices rather than right. relying on some anonymous book of experts who lived 2000 years ago. Our universe is incredible, surrounded by mystery and beauty, and many of us have questions about our past, present, and future. October Hallam is an intuitive medium with over 20 years of experience. She has assisted people with discovering their path by understanding their past and connected the living to their loved ones who have made the transition. She is currently offering readings through Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, phone, and in person. You can reach her at theancientgift222 at gmail.com. Yeah, it was like uh, they decided we couldn't think for ourselves at some point, and they would be providing us, spoon-feeding us the information that they wanted us to know. But it, it was detrimental to us humans because now we have no idea who and what we are, where we came from, exactly. what sources. You know, we, we don't know our true human selves now because of this. Exactly. And it's repeating itself. Exactly. It's repeating itself. Oh, uh, over, over and over again. In, in the book Censoring God, I begin with the story of the Smothers Brothers, believe it or not, and how uh, their program was canceled, largely because the censors. Uh, the censors would not allow that. They were looking for an excuse. And uh, I put a whole chapter, <laughs> a couple of pages, all about how the, the Smothers Brothers uh, were seemed to be uh, the 
even the president of the United States at the time was watching that show and saying, I don't want people to hear this stuff. And so the censors got in the way and the program was taken off. So it wasn't that long ago. And I'm sure it's still being practiced today in ways that uh, we will never fully understand. Um, I'm, I'm always amazed at how people like well, politicians, for instance, can decide uh, what we can have and we can't handle it. You know, that, that great line from the movie, you can't handle the truth. I don't want someone deciding that for me. I want to make up my own mind one way or the other. Yeah, it just goes back to this divine right to rule mentality. Um, yeah. And you were you were talking about the the Book of Enoch, which I currently have on uh, the dresser next to my bed because uh, I've uh. been uh, over the past few months reading it over and over, just going through some different uh, verses. But it's sure. it is really a fascinating book. I'd like to know how much of it you think is um, referring to the celestial beings and how much of it is metaphorical, such as fallen angels that mated with humans to bring forward these Nephilim. 15, 20 years ago, I would have said the whole thing was a big metaphor. I don't believe that anymore. There's just too much information there. Uh, if you want to just give a metaphor to teach a moral truth or a spiritual truth, you don't need to go into the kind of detail that that is. As a matter of fact, he gives us so much detail that it almost gets us, it almost gets in the way of the metaphor. Uh, saying he met an angelic being, that's okay. That's a metaphor. But then all of a sudden he decides to tell us their names. If it's just a metaphor, why does he have to give names to these angelic beings? I think that Enoch was a shaman. Uh, I think he was a, a pre-Diluvian shaman who uh, had a tremendous spiritual wisdom. Uh, now, a lot of his story may have been blown up over the time, but when I read the book of Enoch now, I'm sensing a core of something that is very real, of something that uh, that really happened. And I'm, I'm hearing the voice of an early, early, early Hebrew writer, uh, written much before the Old Testament that we know, um, and telling us a story of, a, 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 when, I, when he talks about being taken up uh, into the heavens, uh, I think it was a shamanic journey. I think he was having an out-of-body experience. And um, I, I think this out-of-body experience happened to other people, even in the Old Testament, people like Isaiah, who was taken up to the seventh heaven and heard, uh, heard of things that, that he couldn't even possibly describe and saw angelic beings. And this old motif comes back of human bodies with animal heads or wings, um, hybrid mixtures. Um, I, I just can't close my mind to the fact that there is so much more detail there that if he just wanted to give us a spiritual lesson or impart a metaphorical uh, allegory, he wouldn't have gone into that kind of detail, especially the kind of detail that people listen to him, listen, listening to it would be apt to say, oh, come on, angels with wings or bodies of humans. It would get in the way of his message. And instead he went overboard to try to say, this is what happened. So yeah, I I think that Enoch was a, a, a pre-Diluvian shaman who had real out-of-body experiences and described those experiences and his journeys. And uh, I think we can get much more out of it if we'll just listen to it and read it with that kind of openness and uh, with that kind of sincerity. Yeah, do you believe that um, these, these Nephilim, uh, there's evidence that there were 
very tall. You know, we could call them giants that mm -hmm. were walking the earth. Um, mm -hmm. And there's there's evidence that this that these bones have been destroyed or hidden by institutions like the Smithsonian. Um, so, it, Censor, what are your thoughts again. on there the? Uh, yeah, yeah. censoring again. Um, what yeah. are your thoughts on the possibility of these giants that could have been, you know, Nephilim that were spoken about in the Bible um, that, you know, were just killed off uh, over a period of time, I, I suppose? Well, it's, it's amazing. You can come into a pretty modern day and still find them. For instance, the diaries of those who sailed with Cortez in Florida, uh, those who uh, were the first Spanish to come onto the American um, continent. 300 years ago, they were talking, or 400 years ago, they, they were talking about coming into contact with actual people who lived there in Florida with massive stature, seven, eight feet tall anyway, that really fit the definition of Genesis when they say the mighty men of renown. So you can find them really late in our history. I think also you can find them uh, throughout mythology from different places. The, the idea of Enoch going up and uh, discovering these beings on top of a mountain is really no different than the Greek legends or the Roman legends of Zeus, for instance, ruling from the mountaintop. And uh, who ruled with him? The gods. And who were the gods? They were mighty men of old, men of renown. I think you can find that mythology scattered throughout our entire history. There's too much of it to just ignore because it seems to us who live in this modern secular age, oh, come on, that can't be real. And we say, well, why can't it be real? Well, because I've never experienced it. Well, that means that the whole world is going to be governed by what we happen to experience. That's a pretty narrow experience. Uh, and I think if we let these myths just speak for themselves, and we find them in Peru, we find them in Europe, we find them in Russia, we find them in China, in Japan. Um, I even think there are there are civilizations, for instance, of 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 uh, that are uh, described kind of around the corner in places like the Bible and ancient Hebrew scripts that can teach us tremendous lessons that may even be our salvation. Um, let me just let me just give you one example that I found fascinating. Um, in uh, 16,500 years ago, now I'm just talking archaeology now, I'm not talking about mythology. 16,500 years ago, there were a people who lived in Japan called the Yoman. Their, their civilization uh, gave so much to us. In 1995, uh, off the coast of uh, Okinawa, in uh, Yonaguni, uh, in, in, in Japan. Uh, there was uh, underneath sometimes 200 feet of ocean, there was a, a great structure found uh, buried beneath the sea. And uh, a fisherman who in 1995 was diving and got too far off the coast of Okinawa saw this and came back and reported it. So they sent out uh, people to discover uh, whether this was a man-made structure or a uh, natural occurring structure that was 200 feet below the ocean. Well, it was whatever it was, we know that it had to be at least 10,000 years old because that's how long it's been since the ocean was at that level. So whatever the structure was, whether it was man-made or whether it was naturally formed, we know that it was in existence and we know that it was above the waves 10,000 years ago. 
Now, after that, we have to try to decide. So is it natural or is it human form? And even the experts disagree with, even friends disagree with each other over this. Uh, Robert Schock, for instance, uh, who's done so much work in, in uh, the Egyptian pyramids and everything else, he believes it was natural. Uh, whereas Graham Hancock, who actually dived on it and talks about it in his his book, Underworld, um, he believes it was man-made. But whatever the case, uh, it, it, it was above the waves at least 10,000 years ago. And if it was not entirely man-made, it was probably at least shaped a bit by human hands when it was above water. So, okay, uh, that would have put it in the time of this people who lived in Japan then called the Yoman people. Yoman people were fascinating people. I'm fascinated by this culture because I think they have a lesson that we desperately need to hear today. This was a civilization that existed for 16,500 years. We know that that's not just mythology. That's like I say, that's archaeology and anthropology. They lived for 16,500 years. And in that time, their civilization changed very little. Their language didn't change very much. We have pottery that goes back 16,500 years. It was a special kind of Yoman pottery uh, called corded pottery that had the, the they, they would make it by uh, uh, forming the clay around these cords and stuff like that. This pottery is found, are you ready for this? From Fiji to South America. South American pottery that goes back to the beginnings of 16,500 years ago. Uh, off the coast of California, they discovered these ships, anchors made out of stone uh, that have been there for 10, 12,000 years. Who, who left them there? Embedded into the pottery was, this, was, was little grains of rice. Now, rice is a cultivated crop. What we're saying is the agricultural revolution was predated by the Yoman people 16,500 years ago. They were practicing agriculture. Then in the DNA, uh, which is the big, that's the gold standard nowadays, in the DNA of American Indian tribes and also the DNA of Modern Japanese people, we find a common ancestor that lived for thousands of years around Lake Baikal in Siberia, which tends to make us think that 16,500 years ago, when the land bridge was open to Siberia, it was the Yoman people who migrated not only east and into uh, America, which, where they became the, the antecedents of many of the American Indian tribes. They also went down south into Japan, where they became the forebears of the, the, the Japanese people. Here's what they have to teach us. In 16,500 years, there is actually no evidence of warfare. There is no evidence of, uh, you know, this great expansions that happen so far when civilizations have to grow or die or that kind of thing. I wonder when I read stories like this, whether a group of people who lived 16,500 years ago learned the value of enough whether they made a deliberate decision that they weren't 
going to overpopulate themselves out of existence, where they weren't going to technologize themselves, technologize themselves out of existence, where they weren't going to practice warfare, where they wanted to live in peace. 16,500 years is a long time. And the first time evidence of war shows up is when uh, they were conquered by a much more uh, a, a much more uh, aggressive people in Japan, who the ones who are now considered the ancestors of the Japanese. If we study civilizations like this from the ancient past and see all this, I wonder if we can learn from them that here was a people who existed for far longer than we've existed, who didn't fall into the traps that we're falling. They learned about how, how to say enough. Let's not go any further. Let's keep it the way it is it's working why mess with it right great they were advanced, great lesson but in a different oh, yeah. type of way you know they yeah. were advanced in a more um spiritual type of way and the technology they used was was different even though it had powerful um properties and it could uh, do amazing mm. things that we can't recreate with our own technology today as far as construction yeah. it yeah. was different it was still a different type of technology probably more frequency based from what i think I hear so. a lot of uh researchers you agree yeah, definitely. I think so. I, I like to call it a psychic toolkit, probably, that we've lost. And the reason we lost it was because this people were conquered by a very aggressive people who went on to form the kind of civilizations that we see today in Japan and in America and everywhere else around the world. Uh, yeah, I, I agree 100%. I, I think it was a, a psychic toolkit that is still present within us. We've just forgotten how to use it, that's all. But it's still there. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, this Japanese group of people that could have existed in peace for, like you said, 16,000 years. Um, you, when well, you look at, at least 16,500 years. That's amazing. When you look yeah. back yeah, at, at least a, a lot that, yeah. of yeah. different yeah. ancient cultures and civilizations, it seems like there were different types of humans that existed back then. Not mm -hmm. just, you know, just regular humans. We, we coexisted with giants uh cone-headed mm -hmm. beings little people um all kinds of different uh, it seems like our dna was vast in the ancient times yeah. <laughs> can, can you imagine the scene what might have happened had the denisovan who were up north in siberia made their way south to meet the indonesian people who we now call hobbits here's seven eight foot sometimes even nine foot people meeting little three foot people uh, <laughs> and realizing they come from the same place. It's, we were a, a, a very different kind of race. We had a, a mixture. We had a, a yeasty thing going on that was, it must have been tremendously exciting. And now we've homogenized it all. And ever since we've homogenized it all, the Denisovans are gone, the Neanderthals are gone, the hobbits are gone, the other the people are gone. And what have we had to show for it since we, uh, since they all left? We've got warfare, we've got starvation, um, we've got inhumanity, we've got all of this going on. Uh, it's it's just a sad thing. It really is a sad thing. We are a people, I think, who function best uh, when we are diverse coming together and recognizing that and understanding that diversity and using it. I think that's when we function best. That's what history can teach us if we just open our minds to listen to it. 
Yes, I'd agree. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what we were talking about earlier, out-of-body experiences. Um, now, I know you have practiced this yourself, uh, sort of astral states and travel. Mm -hmm. And um, you you studied with uh, William Buhlman, is that correct? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, uh, I think Bill Buhlman is probably the foremost uh, expert in uh, out-of-body experiences teaching today. Uh, he was kind enough to give me a, uh, a little blurb at the front of my book, um, uh, quant um, I can never remember the names of the quantum Akashic field. Uh, he was kind enough to read it and send me a little, uh, little paragraph that I have in the, the first couple of pages. Um, Bill used to teach us that this is available to just about anyone. And his, his mantra was 30 days, 30 minutes a day. Uh, he said that anyone who was willing to, to, to take 30 minutes a day and religiously uh, practice that 30 minutes a day at the correct time when your biorhythms are right, when your mind is right, when find that time of the day when your mind works best. Uh, if you're too tired, you're going to fall asleep. If you're too jazzed up early in the morning thinking about what's going to happen, you won't be able to calm it down. Find that time that works for you when you are sufficiently rested but not overly uh, stimulated. And if you uh, meditate for 30 minutes a day using some exercises that he's, uh, he is, he's given us and he there in his, in his books and in his lectures, if you do that religiously every day for 30 days, you will have an out-of-body experience. And uh, I'm here to tell you, uh, if I had stopped at day 28 I wouldn't be talking to you today, probably. Uh, but the fact that uh, after 28, 29, 30 days, uh, finally, um, the first breakthrough happened. And once it happens, once it, you, you all of a sudden stop becoming a believer and you start becoming a knower. And there's a great difference between knowing and believing. And once you experience it yourself, you'll never go back. And the sky is the limit. It will become, it could very easily become the most important thing in your life. Yeah. And you say the sky is the limit. I think a lot of people don't understand what can, what is, can be achieved with astral travel or out of body experiences. I mean, I've heard of people that have gone to different planets, uh, people that have yeah. gathered information from across the world, um, yes, gathered yeah. information about our past, their own past. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have access to basically anything and everything if you can master these skills, right? Yes. Yeah. And uh, there, there are basically two kinds of out-of-body experience. And first of all, I guess I have to talk about out-of-body experience. I don't know. Nobody knows for sure if there's something in us that actually leaves the body um, or if that's the impression we get because we can't conceive of it any other way. Uh, quantum physics may have something explaining about this in the, their concept of entanglement. Uh, two different particles which are entangled uh, can be on opposite sides of the universe. And when one has an experience, the other will mimic that experience because they are entangled forever. <laughs> Albert Einstein called it spooky action at a distance. That may have something to do with it. I, I'm not sure. But there are basically two ways of explaining it that work for me. One is the idea of etheric travel. Uh, etheric out-of-body travel is any travel in which you are seeing 
the uh, perception realm in which we live. Now, you may go to the farthest star uh, in, in the universe, and you may see the whole universe, hold the whole universe in, in, in the palm of your hand, as I have done on two unbelievably humbling occasions. And uh, they make you, uh, but you are still dealing with the material universe. You are traveling within the material universe. There's another kind of out-of-body uh, travel that's called astral travel, and that involves other dimensions that have nothing to do with this material uh, dimension that we live in. Now, they may not be very far. They may be only a vibration or two separating us between these dimensions. But because the physics are different in each dimension and because our particular um, five senses are attuned to just let us to let in what's happening in this material dimension, we're just not in touch with that, that other kind of dimension. But if, if we can travel to other dimensions in astral travel, as in out-of-body experiences, why can't they travel to us? Uh, why can't they step into our dimension if we can step into theirs? Uh, the problem comes when you try to describe this kind of thing. You're dealing with a, a, a dimension, an entity from another dimension, and then all of a sudden you come back, you have an unbelievable experience where you say, as you said earlier, you get a block of teaching that doesn't come sentence by sentence, letter by letter. It's a block of teaching that somehow you just understand. It's almost like a mind transfer, so to speak. Now, how do you describe that in English? Because English was, or any language was invented to describe what happens on this side of our own particular cosmic fence. So how can we come back? We can't say this is what it is. All we can say is this is what it was like. And uh, it can sound pretty fantastic. So when you think about this, and you start thinking about these earlier out-of-body experiences that we were talking about a while back, uh, seeing angels, angelic beings, or perhaps hybrid beings that have angels or heads of, you know, of animals or something like that. Does it mean that this is what they look like? All we can say is, well, it's the best I can explain it in given the, the uh, ramifications of, of the language that is here. Uh, it may not have been this exactly, but it was like this. It felt like this. So, um, yeah, I have no doubt, too, that when we're talking about um, uh, uh, astronaut theory or ancient astronaut theory or uh, UFOs or something like that, I have no doubt we're talking about two separate things at the same time. Uh, are there nuts and bolts spaceships that actually come from other planets? Yeah, I think such a thing is perfectly possible, given a science that's way above ours, but it's possible. On the other hand, I think some of them are probably also uh, describing uh, experiences or encounters with entities from other dimensions that are no farther away than a couple of vibrations uh, to us. And I think we have to keep both in mind when we're talking about these. Our, our, our people have been talking about these forever. Our language talks about elves and gnomes and fairies and uh, leprechauns and all kinds of things like this. I think these are all words to describe actual entities that really exist. Uh, and we just have to be open to it. It's, it's not 
crazy. It's science. <laughs> Open our minds. If it's there, let's check it out. Yeah. Like you said, once you experience it, it becomes knowing. And once you oh, know, yeah. there's no going back. Uh, and, yeah. Uh, me experiencing that myself, I'm so glad that I did. To have that sense of knowing, there's a comfort behind it because mm-hmm. you know that you're not alone and you know, you're know you not crazy. These things do exist. Um, and it, like you said, they, I think it is a combination of both. There may be beings coming here and they're saucers or whatever from a different mm-hmm. galaxy mm-hmm. but uh, i think a majority right. of it is just entities that are in a different frequency or density or dimension yeah. whatever you want to call it uh, mm-hmm. i think if the ufo fields of research came together and could understand that that it's both and stop kind of arguing yeah. over it's yeah. nuts and bolts or it's this we could get a lot further in the ufo field research yeah, I, I think so too. And when when you stop to think about it, it makes perfect sense. If if you consider that we all come from source, uh, we don't know what source is, but we come from source. We come through consciousness, what both Einstein and uh, Stephen Hawking called the mind of God. We journey through the Akashic field. Uh, we come into quantum reality, which I like to call the place of thoughts and intuitions. From that quantum reality, we are still energy, energetic, uh, but we are individual beings for the first time. In source, there is no individuality. In source, it's all together. We're all one, perfect oneness, perfect unity. We leave source to gather up experiences of uh, those in that individual experience. We travel through the newly discovered Higgs field where energy takes on mass and we're out here in material reality manifested, what I like to call the perception realm. Now, if we make a choice to come into this dimension, into this place at this time and travel out here to the edge where we live in the material world, why can't, when we're back in source, make the same choice to go to a totally different kind of dimension and have a totally different kind of reality with a totally different kind of individuality? Uh, It's simply a matter of a different experience. That's all. So uh, what we're doing, we're, when we meet these uh, these entities from other dimensions, I like to just say, well, I'll see you back at the source, you know, because they, like us, they have a different uh, uh, rules of physics. They're following a different kind of uh, existence than us. But we all come from source and from their experience and whatever dimension they're in and from our dimension and our experience, whatever dimension we're in, we're both going to meet back at the source and realize that the only thing that differs in our experience is uh, the kind of manifestation we had. One was a physical manifestation described by our laws of physics. One was a different dimension described by different laws of physics and a different, but um, you know, Hugh Everett, gave us the many worlds, many, uh, the many dimensions, uh, many uh, universes, the multiverse. And uh, a lot of physicists accept that nowadays. Why can't those different universes be considered different dimensions? Why can't they come into our dimension? Why can't it be that at Christmas time, when Christians gather together, most of whom don't believe in different dimensions, but they sing, hark the herald angels sing, or angels from the realms of glory. They're talking about entities with wings that look different than us, but sometimes similar to us. And they're stepping out of their dimension into us. Uh, All of a sudden that stops being religion. And it stops, it starts being practical experience. It starts being science. But in order to get it, we have to study it. In order to study it, we have to open our minds to it. 
Now, you, when you're talking about source, do you think that all beings that originate from what we would call source share this collective consciousness, um, you know, all beings that are of the light and, and of this, this source, that, that we still share this collective thought and consciousness? Yeah, I might even go a little farther and say that perhaps source is consciousness. Uh, and when you say we're open up to all kinds of things when we do out-of-body experience, all kinds of information. I'm not sure, but that we have this experience so we can carry this experience back to the source and we can deposit it in what is called the Akashic field or the Akashic records or the Akashic library. And out-of-body experience can give us information to that. Even in physics, um, Stephen Hawking was very, uh, very, uh, brilliant in this when he talked about nothing being able to escape from a closed system and in a black hole every information every bit of information that goes into a black hole is somehow still present there uh, perhaps it's on the edge of the black hole in which case if we were to view it and th it would be a two-dimensional figure then on the edge or on the, the surface of the black hole but if we were to shine the right kind of energy beam through it, it would all of a sudden become a hologram, uh, which might be what we are. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's, it's just hard to say. But uh, all that energy, all that, that knowledge is there because that's what we came here to do is to experience literally the infinity of knowledge that we can only experience as individuals. Now, I'm not saying that this is the way it is. I'm not starting a new religion here. I'm saying that this makes sense to me. That's all. It, it's helped me. And if it can help anybody else, great. But please don't say this is the way it is because that's what Jim said. <laughs> I don't want to ever get into that kind of a thing. Now, for the last few minutes we have, I'd like to talk a little bit about some ancient um, construction practices that are fascinating to me, such as the doors to nowhere that are built into like a side of a mountain or the side of a rock or a temple. These yeah. doors that appear, you know, like they can just go somewhere, but they go nowhere. Do you think that these were yeah. some sort of interdimensional portals or, or some sort of device of that nature? I, I sure have to be open to it because I really do believe that the old ones, the ancients, uh, working with uh, the psyche as in ways that we just don't do. We're, we're, we're too fast. We're too loud. We're too excited. We're too ego-driven. But the ancients uh, could spend much more time with this. And I think they did discover portals. Um, Either that or perhaps even made the portals uh, possible through their intention. Uh, and I think they were once used. And uh, I, I think we have portals all around us. There's a place down below us where we built a, a medicine wheel, my wife and I, and uh, we have become convinced that it is a portal to a dimension that I can never understand. Uh, I had a healing down there when I met people from that uh, came through that portal, wise women who actually healed uh, in ankle. I, I, I tell the story in uh, quantum physics. I, won't, I haven't got time to go into it now, but in quantum uh, Akashic field, where uh, it was an actual physical healing uh, of, of, a, of a very badly sprained, perhaps broken ankle uh, that happened right down there in that portal. Now, where did these wise women come from? I think they came through the portal that we opened up when we built the medicine wheel. And um, 
now years go by and people come along and they see this strange edifice and they say, well, what does it do? They go through it, doesn't lead anywhere. So, oh, okay, let's block it up. So they block it up. Or perhaps it's been blocked ever since it was built, but it was blocked in a way that seems us to, to us, it seems blocked because it seems solid, but perhaps given the right intention and perhaps given the right uh, frame of mind, it wasn't a blockage. You could just go right through it. Um, I, I, I know that there are people who say, uh, well, we have to be, be very careful with these things. We have to be careful, you know, because these people, these entities might mean us harm. I just don't think so. I think we cannot operate out of fear. Consciousness is the universal source, I think. And along with consciousness, and the, the other word that keeps coming up time and time again is love and empathy and compassion. And I think if we approach the universe and approach these mysteries with that kind of an idea. Uh, I think there are beings that want to protect us, that don't want to hurt us. Now, obviously there's evil out in the world. So probably, yeah, we, there are probably uh, evil beings in Christianity. We call them demons. And uh, sometimes in, in Muslim or things, they call them jinns, you know, and all this kind of thing. But basically on the whole, I, I, I think when, and when the Bible says God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, I'm going to take that literally until proven otherwise. I really am. Yeah, I personally believe if you're a good person and you approach these entities with good intentions and you're seeking out the good entities and not these darker ones, you know, you don't have bad intentions, that that's the experience you're going to receive, that they're kind yeah. of attracted to that. And if you ask for it enough, that they will come to you because that's what yeah. I've experienced and many people have told me that, you know, they've asked for it enough, it, it'll happen. I think so. We've lived in a very violent time of human history uh, for the last six, 8,000 years. Uh, 10,000, well, 8,500 years ago was the first time in the Middle East, for instance, we have a city, Jericho, perhaps the oldest city in the world that uh, still standing. Uh, all of a sudden they started building gates around it. The emphasis is that before that, it was not a violent time. It was not a warlike time. This means that if we've been on the earth for 300,000 years, which many anthropologists are accepting now, a minuscule time has been involved in this time of violence. And I think this minuscule time of violence in which we live has colored our own thinking and made us suspect that whenever you see somebody, you're going to naturally go to war with them. You're going to be naturally, they're going to have your worst intention at heart. That's a very minuscule time of history, but it's the time of history that has trained us to think that way. Maybe we need to go back and start thinking as we did for the vast, vast majority of time we were here on earth. And that's good intentions and positivity. And, um, you know, I was told during these communications that um, love and empathy is a major thing lacking for the human race uh, now. And, you know, that really needs to be, to be one of the focuses brought back. So boy, there's I a lesson. Really there's a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. Well, thank yeah. you for sharing that, Chris. Oh, yeah, of course. But, um, yeah, before we close out tonight, um, I'd like to get uh, if you could give us a little bit preview of what you're going to be presenting at Forbidden Knowledge NewsCon. Well, um, 
it's funny you should mention we were just starting to work on the uh, the, the PowerPoint for it a little bit. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, hidden histories, and we're going to be talking well a lot of the same stuff we've talked about tonight, but in a much more developed, much more systematic way. Uh, we're going to be talking about the the hidden histories that are hidden from us, and also the hidden methods that we've been talking about, uh, and and how we can do that in 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 the in the context of the whole thing we're going to be talking about uh, what we now call ancient gods who were they supernatural gods who were they where did they come from uh and we'll be presenting a lot of evidence that'll be kind of a, a bringing together of my books uh ancient gods supernatural gods hidden history and censoring god all put together <laughs> in in uh, in in one time but we're looking forward to that if if anybody is interested in finding out any more about this kind of stuff or if you would like to get in touch with me i, I love to get in touch with readers so or listeners so uh viewers if you want to uh go to my website www.jimwillis.com or .net rather jimwillis.net uh, you'll also find my Facebook uh, page and also my YouTube page, which is kind of a new thing. We're bringing out, uh, we've already brought out one YouTube on dowsing and we've got the second one is being worked on now. The third one is planned. There'll be about six of these it's designed to take a person from a beginning dowser into more advanced things. Uh, I also have some of the uh, more formal presentations of stuff that we've talked about in this last hour. So, uh, and there's a contact page. Send me an email if you'd like, jimwillis.net. Awesome. That sounds great. Jim, thank you so much for coming on again today. Very much looking forward to your presentation in April. And until next time, take care and have an excellent evening. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. We'll see you now. All right. Everyone else have a great night. <laughs>